0: Glory to God! Thank you, worship team. Why don't you appreciate all their efforts to have good worship ready for us? It's a good thing. We're going to be over in the book of Luke, chapter nineteen. The book of Luke, the nineteenth chapter. We haven't looked at this story too often, but you have probably have great remembrance of this story in your years in Sunday school. There was a man who was conducting a survey. and He knocked on the front door, and a little boy answered. And he's just sat there staring up at the man. The man asked, how many people live in the house? And the boy replied, well, there's Jimmy and there's Mary and there's Sophie and there's Bobby. And he's about to go on. The man cut him off. And he said, look, just give me the numbers. The little boy replied, there are no numbers in this house. They are all names to me. (laughs) To God, there are no numbers. They are all names to him. And we have to make sure that we look at the world, not as numbers but as names, as people that God wants to be in his family. Last couple of weeks, we looked at some stories regarding the unsaved and going out there and ministering to them. Jesus at the well with the woman, woman who was living in sin. And he speaks no words of condemnation to her. He just says to her, the man that you're living with now is not your husband. And had five men before that. They began to talk, and they began to speak, and of course, she did what a lot of unsaved people do. She, uh, when Jesus started to get personal, started to get in there with with things, she started asking questions that give no light. How many have become conscious of people who ask questions that the answers give no light? And this is what the world will do, they'll ask questions about uh, Bible interpretation and how the Bible was translated, and well, why is this book in there and and stuff you would just kind of surprised it, even know. end times questions, questions about the Trinity, questions about Adam and Eve, questions about where did Adam and Eve get the wives for their sons yes yeah, real real light giving questions like that because they want to distract from the thing that they have in front of them that they have a need for the light. And as soon as the light begins to come, begins to be turned on for them, they immediately want to get into something with darkness. So they're going to ask you questions that bring no light. We saw that with the woman with the issue, or not the woman with the issue, but the woman at the well. Last week, we looked at the invitation that was given. The master was creating a great feast, and he wanted people to come. And he had all these people that were given a pre-invitation to come. And when the day got there, they said, well, we're busy. You know, I just got married. I gotta go, you know, make sure that the wife I, I got is the one that I bargained for. I don't know what else we gotta do with that. Just bought some land. Well, I gotta make sure that the, uh, the land I got, you know, that's good land. Well, who buys land and doesn't see it? <laughs> Nobody. We buy land that we, and we, we see it. Well, I bought some ox, oxen, and I gotta go check them out. Make sure that they're okay. Well, who buys a car and doesn't go first test drive it? That's not stuff that we do. Well, here we're going to take a look at another story in Luke chapter 19. How many of you remember the man Zacchaeus? Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Short little story here, but there's some things we can learn about it as we reach out to those that are unsaved around us. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now, behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich now in this day and age much has been made of rich people and if you listen to the news media you are supposed to hate rich people if you listen to certain politicians they also want you to hate rich people what is amazing to me is that the politicians that want you to hate rich people are rich, are rich. <laughs> what, what sense is that harry reed out there calling for people's tax records You tell me how a man making, oh, that's a good salary. He makes $190,000 a year as the head of the Senate. He made $145,000 before that. You tell me how a man who makes that much money has become a multimillionaire during the time he was senator. Maybe we ought to take a look at those tax records. But, of course, we don't release those tax records, do we? No, we don't want to do that. There's been a lot of things said about how he came to his riches, and there's been some evidence about it. But, he, I mean, you've got to be careful. If you're guilty of some stuff, why in the world are you pointing the finger at other people, you're calling attention to things that you've you got going on? And they just don't need to be doing that. You don't need to have that, that kind of thing going on. But we've got people out there, and they want us to feel poorly about the rich. We gave you the stats before. You can go up to the IRS website if you want to. But the rich one percent. How many have heard about the rich one percent? That one percent of this country that is so evil, and so hated, and is so despised. That one percent pays forty percent of all income taxes that are collected. One percent of the country people in this country pay forty percent of the income taxes. Is that fair? Talk about them paying their fair share. You can go on the going down, but as you look at the stats that are given, fifty almost—it's just just under it, I think—but near fifty percent of the people in this country pay no taxes at all. Federal taxes, we're talking about. See, if you get the facts, you don't despise people. There's no reason to despise the rich. There's no reason at all to despise the rich. Why? Why do we have to despise anybody? You think that because certain people are rich, you can't be? That's what they want you to believe. You know what? There's plenty of money to go around. And it's not like there's only so much money. You can go out there and generate and find out some ways and find out some things to do. Get some money going on. No one's holding you back. Don't let people get out there. Right now, you know, Romney's a big target. People want to get to despise him. And, uh, you know, how he earned his money and all that sort of stuff. Do you know that he got an inheritance? Anybody know that, that uh, Romney got an inheritance? You know what he did with his inheritance? He gave it to charity. He gave all his inheritance to charity. Why does a man do that? Why does a despised man do that? Why does a man who is evil and hates poor people do that? I tell you what, don't get your news from the news people. Because there's a whole lot more stuff out there than they don't, wanna, they don't want you to know about. Don't do it. Well, here we got a tax collector. Chief tax collector, Zacchaeus, and he was rich. Now, how, I understand how they work taxes in Rome. They don't work taxes in Rome the way we work taxes. They work taxes in Rome. by uh, Rome decided that if you want to find out who has the money in a town, you need to hire somebody in the town. Because people in a town know the people in the town. So instead of sending an outside tax collector into the cities and then going around and trying to assess everybody and find out what they owe, they would hire people into town because you can't hide your money forever. You can't hide your stuff forever. It's going to come out. And the people in the town are going to know about it. And so they would hire people in the town to collect the taxes. So if you know about it and your income is based on what you tax... So if you collected for the year $50,000 just to throw an amount of money, they would give you a percentage of that money. So the more money that you collect, if you collected $100,000 instead of $50,000, then your paycheck was bigger. So it was to your advantage to make the tax greater. And so some tax collectors would get kind of caught up with how they could make money. And, and so they would assess people uh, maybe a little bit more than they should have. Well, how would that work with you if a neighbor, someone that's, you know, your own countryman, is putting taxes on you that you don't really owe in order to make himself rich? How would you like this man? Would you despise him? (laughs) So this is the tax collector here. This is why he's despised Zacchaeus because he is one of their own. He's been hired by Rome and he has decided to side with Rome. Now, what does Rome do with the money they collect? They fund the army. They pay the Caesar. They collect riches. So Rome becomes richer and they can pay the army that comes in. And what does the army do? Help people during floods. Rebuild homes after an earthquake. Bring over some food and blankets after a fire. Is that what the Roman soldiers are doing? No, No, the Roman soldiers are there to oppress you to keep you under their thumb. That's what they're there to do. So Zacchaeus is collecting money to keep Rome in a place to be able to keep Israel under their thumb. Can you see why he's despised? Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now, he didn't stop in Jericho. Jericho would have been one of the bigger cities. And, you know, Jesus just never got public relations, right? He'd be out there in the wilderness... People would come to him, but he'd get to the big cities. You know, he just passed through. He didn't stay there long enough. He's supposed to stay there in the big cities. You want to get some money? You want to get some fame? You got to stay there in the big cities a little bit longer. But he didn't do that. He passed right on through Jericho. And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now, behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He was rich, and he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd. For he was a... he was of short stature. I don't know what it means for him to be of short stature. Does that mean he was five foot? Does that mean he was less than five foot? We do know that he was height challenged and that other people were generally over him. And so he had a hard time seeing over top of the other people. How many have have lived a life of being height challenged? We have a few people here. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and you know you're always feeling like you're shorter than everybody else and you can't quite see over everybody else and well you can get an idea what Zacchaeus was like he was he was feeling this way So um got a height challenged tax collector Maybe that's one reason why he took the tax collector job Maybe he could do this one And he sought to see who Jesus was He sought to see does this sound like the kind of man that's pursuing Jesus that's pursuing the light of the gospel he has sided with Rome he is cheating on people's taxes to make them pay more money so that he can get a part of it because what he has to do he's got to get you to pay a hundred dollars so that he can pocket whatever percentage let's just say he pocketed five percent so he can get another five bucks he's got to get you to pay a hundred extra hundred for him to get fifty bucks he's got to get you to pay an extra thousand he just gets a small part of it, but he'd rather do that. Does that sound like a guy who's hungry after Jesus? Oh, no. That's why appearance is not always going to tell you whether people are hungry after Jesus or not. How many know some hard people? Some people that just don't seem like they're seeking after Jesus. They're cheating. They're using people. They're hurting people. Do I think they're going after Jesus. Well, this is where Zacchaeus is. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but he could not because of the crowd, for he was short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. There's all kinds of sycamore trees this could have been. There's a couple of different uh, types of sycamores out there. So the type of one it is, it doesn't seem to matter too much. It doesn't give us a whole lot on it, but there's several different kinds that are growing in Israel. But obviously, it was a tree that was easy to climb for a short person. Now, if you're a short person and you need to climb up a short uh, a tree, then you've got to have branches that are down low to the ground. I was a tree climber in my day. I don't know if I was a great tree climber. I've seen some people who can climb trees and I couldn't do anything like they could do. But, you know, if there was a tree, I'd try and climb it. And we'd have some, you know, that don't have branches going all the way on down, but they would kind of have two trunks and they would go into a V. Ever see a tree growing like that? Two trunks that are kind of growing away from each other into a V. And so we would have some of these trees that the, there was no low branches, but there were some branches a little higher up. And so what we would do is we'd get our feet and we'd press between the two, v, the two sides. And then we'd uh, use our hands and we, we'd shimmy on up until we can get up to a high enough spot that we'd grab hold of one of the other branches. And then we'd climb the rest of the way up the tree. In order to do that, you had to have long legs. Because the further up you go, the further the V is apart. And you have to get up high enough in order to be able to do that. So, you know, there's different ways you can come up with with climbing up a tree. And I have fallen out of my share of trees. It's not too good. The higher up you are in a tree, the uh, more branches you're going to hit on the way down. When Christian was younger, we had this really tall pine tree out in front of our house in Warrington. And, um, you know, my... Wife grew up around this house, and it was her grandparent's house, and it was a really tall pine tree. And so we got into the thing, and uh, the branches were pretty dense in it. So it was kind of, the, the bigger you were, the harder it was to climb this tree. But I encouraged my son, and he climbed all the way up that sucker. He got up to the top of that, and mom didn't come out until he was at the top. <laughs> Needless to say, she was not as happy at his achievement as I was. But he got all the way up to the top of that pine tree. You know, she's looking up there and seeing, what is what is moving up in the top of that tree? <laughs> was not happy to hear that it was her son. But um, he's a short guy, so you can kind of get an idea. What it is, is some of the sycamore trees are of those types of these kind of wiry branches and just kind of going on up. They just got branches all over the place and I saw a couple of things on the Internet. People were putting things away. Maybe that I guess they think that this might have been the tree that he was climbing up or whatever it might be. I don't know. I couldn't find an actual claim that if it was, they just would say Zacchaeus is a sycamore tree. So the crowd played a role here in this whole thing. They prevented Zacchaeus from seeing Jesus because of height issues. How many of you all know that there's some crowd issues around where you are? The crowd keeps people from seeing Jesus. All kinds of things. There are preconceived ideas that people have gotten because they tell you who Christians are, who Jesus is, what his followers are like. There are ideas they have that Jesus is too exclusive, too demanding, too condemning. The Bible has too many contradictions. I'm not good enough. I've been too evil. I want a party. I have friends in hell. Ever hear that one? I've heard that from people. You know, you're on your way to hell. That's okay. i got friends there. They obviously don't understand what they're getting into, right? <laughs> it is better to be in heaven with no friends at all. Oh my, but you know, they don't know that. So, we got to enlighten them. But they have all kinds of preconceived ideas what, what hell is and what it's about. But Jesus knows who Zacchaeus is. That's kind of amazing. Here's a sinner, tax collector, sided with Rome, and Jesus knows who he is. So Zacchaeus, he runs ahead, climbs up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he just stops, looks up in the tree, sees Zacchaeus. Now, I don't know that Zacchaeus was necessarily hidden in the tree. It doesn't seem that Zacchaeus is... uh, Ashamed to be out in the crowd. He's not in the tree trying to hide from the people. He was trying to get to Jesus, but couldn't get there because of the people. He has to go and knock on their doors and collect their taxes. So, And, you know, he's kind of sided with Rome. No one's going to hurt him. They may dream of hurting him. But he's pretty confident they're afraid of Rome and they won't hurt him. But he says this to Zacchaeus, Make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Make haste and come down. Jesus knows who Zacchaeus is. He knows where he is, and that the Father wants him to go to His house for dinner. You imagine that Jesus told you that there's a sinner, and God wants you to go to that place for dinner. Has God ever told you to go into amidst sinners for dinner? He told Jesus to a couple of times in the word of God, we have him going among sinners and they're all wondering, why is he eating among sinners? That was okay with Jesus. Now his close fellowship was his disciples and those who followed him, but he would go over there and he would have dinner at these places. I've told you the story before. I got invited to some parties that typically I would not go to. First uh, year I was down there at Ken's Pizza, working among the most vile sinners i had ever been around in my life and going to Ramah Bible Training Center. Then I was going to be away from home for Thanksgiving, which was nothing new. I was usually away from home on Thanksgiving, going out to school because even when I was closer, we had cross-country meets, we had track meets, we had some kind of thing going on. So Thanksgiving, we usually spent over at coach's house. We didn't—I um, didn't usually make it home for that. But you know, out in the, Tulsa, you're a lot further away. You're not coming home for a weekend, and I didn't come home for the weekend, so we stayed out there. And everybody knew I was out there on my own, and and so uh, they had these these parties were going on and. Thanksgiving, something over the Thanksgiving holiday. And so I got the invitation. You want to come over to our party? No, I don't have to ask a whole lot of questions. I kind of knew what kind of parties they're going to have, you know, drinking. And well, I really didn't know what they went on in the parties. I'd never been to one. I just imagined what went on in those parties. I'd never been one, never wanted to go to one. Still don't. And um, so I told him, yeah, well, thanks very much. But I don't think I'll be doing that. And uh went on. But. The next couple of days, God dealt with me. I want you to go to that party, dear Lord. You've got to be kidding me! I thought I was learning how to hear Jesus' name, Jesus' voice, and here I'm telling me to go to this party. I don't. That can't be God. But sure enough, it was. And so I went back up to him and I recounted it, and I said, "Look, I'll, I'll go ahead and go to your party." And uh, I wasn't driving then because you know I was a student, and I pretty much took all your money, <laughs> being, a, being a student. So I wasn't driving. So I had to get a ride with somebody. So I'm thinking, man, if they drink. And then I'm in the car with them, and they're driving home. I'm thinking about all this sort of stuff. Dear Lord, what is God trying to do with me, Put me out here to this party? And so I go and get in the car with them, and we drive on out to the party. And we get on out there, and the party was at my uh, boss's, the supervisor who taken over the story. It was at her house. We get on out there. I, if you remember the story I've been telling you before, I told you there's some bags out in the porch. And the bags are inside of a big bag. And the bag says is labeled and says, If nudity offends you, wear one of these. I said, dear Lord, I know I miss God. (laughs) I was ready to take one of the bags, just to go sit in the car and wait for them to get done, take me on back home. (laughs) Surely, surely God does not want me in here. That nearly, nearly sent me off. But I said, no, well, (laughs) what am I going to do? I'm here. I know God said to be here. So I went on inside into the party. And um party was going on. It wasn't quite as, I don't know what I expected, but it wasn't quite it. (laughs) <laughs> and, and uh, there was no drugs going all over the place and I guess people were drinking I suppose that but uh, one of the waitresses from the store that I, I knew real well she came over to me and said uh, can I get you something to drink and of course I said course, uh, so this is the waitress who got me into drinking Diet Coke <laughs> Up until I met this waitress, I always drank Coke. But she said uh, she used to mix di- uh, Diet Coke and Coke together. And I thought, you know, that tasted better. And after a while, I got less and less Coke and more and more Diet Coke. And, and then weaned myself right on off from the, the other. Now I can't go back to the other stuff. But anyway, she said, I'll, I'll get you a, a Coke and it'll just be Coke. It won't be anything else. I said, all right, I trusted her. And so she brought me something. And so I had a little soda to drink. And sure enough, it was just soda. <laughs> and so we sat around. And people gathered around. We were talking, and we talked about Bible the whole night. They fired off question after question. Some of the questions were were darkness. were were not light questions. They they're just you know dark people asking darkness questions and stuff like that, and they didn't mean anything at all. But we actually got on to some meaning, meaningful things. And we talked about the Bible the whole night long. That's all we talked about was the Bible, and there were no naked people. I was real glad about that. And so uh, we finished up. We had our, I got my first party under the, under the belt. And um, we went on home. Glory to God, that's over with. <laughs> and so lo, well, sometime down the road, I got a second invitation to a party. And I gave him my same answer. No, that's okay. I don't think I'll be going to that. And uh, God dealt with me again. I want you to go. Well, I already this is my second time through it, so I learned. All right, I'll go. So I went. And... Um, I don't remember where this one was. It was at the same place or a different spot, but went on along. And pretty much the same thing that happened the first time happened the second time. I sat there drinking my soda, and people gathered around, and we had Bible questions the whole night long. That's all I talked about was Bible questions. And they fired one question after another. We just talked about the Bible. We talked about God the entire night. I don't know if this is how their parties usually go. (laughs) But this is how these ones went. And, you know, the, the the crowd was growing around and they were asking questions. Sometimes they'd filter off and other ones would come on in. But anyway, we were asking, we we're talking Bible questions the whole night. And I had it on back home. Again, someone else was driving me and there were four four of us in the car. Two of us were in the back seat. And the guy in the back seat next to me gave his life over to Jesus that night. On the way back, way home in the back seat, he says, I need to have Jesus in my heart. So we prayed and he got Jesus in his heart and back of that car. They asked me to go to some more parties after that. God never said I should, so I never did. I never assumed that I was supposed to go. I went to two and that was it. He never told me to go to another one. But sometimes you have to go in amongst sinners and you need to talk about Jesus, and not be uncomfortable about it. Right. Going out there because they're curious. You know, it really shocked me that you go to a party and people are sitting there talking about God. How many of y'all know you can go to some church parties and they don't talk about God at all? <laughs> Go to a sinner party, they're talking about God the whole day, all kinds of questions about it. So Jesus is going to go to Zacchaeus' house. That's the house of a sinner. All the people he could have picked. He goes to the house of a sinner. Now look at what Zacchaeus does. Remember what Jesus said to him to do? Look at what he does. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. Here's what is interesting about Zacchaeus. On the external part, we have a very hard man who is cheating people in order to get money for himself. And he's made himself very rich. He's despised by the people around him. They see him getting rich and they know he's getting rich off of them. But Jesus says some things to him. Remember what he said? Make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. He does exactly what Jesus asks him to do. When Zacchaeus encounters Jesus as a sinner, he does exactly what Jesus says. How many believers could take a lesson from that? How many times do believers receive the word from God and they don't follow? They question it. You know, Jesus says, Make haste, come on down, I'm going to your house today. Well, and they start talking. That's not making haste. Making haste is do it now. Anybody who's been in the military, they teach you what now means. Right? If you get into the military, you find out what now means. Now does not mean in two seconds. Now does not mean in one minute. Now means now. We mean immediately. If we say push-ups now, you drop. You do not find a comfortable place. You put them, you get them, get them done then. You find out what now means. Some Christians need to find out what now means. Some Christians need to find out what make haste means. So he says to Zacchaeus, make haste, come down. And so Zacchaeus made haste, came down, and received him joyfully. No questions and no excuses. He doesn't say, well, I didn't clean up yet. I don't know if I have enough food. Well... I really have an appointment to get to. He doesn't do any of that, does he? It is. Make haste and come down. And he received him joyfully. No reasonings about being unworthy. Now he does it, it says, joyfully. He received him joyfully. He took him into his house and he was happy about it. He was glad. He was joyful. I put this in your outline. Most or most reasons why Christians don't obey without questions, excuses, and reasoning. Because, you know, Christians, we are real good at not obeying without questions. Well, God, do I really have to do it that way? Can't I do it over here? Remember the guy with the leper? Who was, he was a leper? Go wash in the Jordan. Well, can't I wash in these? The rivers of Damascus are much nicer. Do I really have to do it that way? Most Christians, most reasons why Christians don't obey without questions, excuses, and reasonings are due to the joy they have in obeying. There are a whole lot of Christians out there, they get no joy out of obeying God. Or very little joy. If you have joy in obeying, if you have joy in anything, you make haste about it. Just take a look at some of the things that you've had joy about. How many were ever about ready to go get a new car? How many of that was a joyful time? New car, because you're getting rid of the old car, getting a new car. Is that a joyful time? How many of you make haste? How many of you, there, there's nothing else. No, this is the time I plan to go get my new car, <laughs> right? And I'm going to get there. I have my appointment at 4 o'clock. I'm going to be there at 3.50. I'll sit and wait. I'm going to go get my new car. We're excited about that. If we're going to go visit somebody we've been looking forward to visiting, we make haste about that. If we're going to go on a first date with somebody. Oh, we're going to make haste. We're going to make sure that we're there. Whatever it is that we really enjoy, that we have joy over, we make haste. We make haste about it because there's joy in it. What's next Sunday? Sunday. It's, it's, it's church, and it's also the opening of football season. That's a joyful time. <laughs> men all over, men and women all over America are going to make haste, and at 1 o'clock, the TV will be turned on to their station to watch football because they have joy in it. When we have joy in a thing, we don't make excuses about it. We don't make, have questions about it because we're joyful. When God tells us to do something, it is because if we do it, there's an end result. We should be able to get joyful about the end result and therefore do the thing. He says to him, make haste, come down because I'm coming to your house today. I'm coming to your house today for dinner. I'm staying over at your house. Father told me I'm supposed to stay over at your house. He is glad about that. He makes haste. He comes down. I just was hoping to see Jesus. He's going to come to my house. What a difference from the Pharisees who invited Jesus to come on over. And they tried to trap him with the man who had the dropsy. What a difference. How much joy do you have in obeying God? Most times it's because you don't know the end result. You don't believe the end result will happen. The man who's... Lame. Jesus comes up to him and says, rise, take up your bed and walk. What's he do? He tells him something to do, doesn't he? Rise, take up your bed and walk. How many of y'all know there can be some reasonings and some excuses given? I can't walk. I can't rise. But I, I can't do that yet. He doesn't do it. He rises, takes up his bed and he walks. You know, there's a whole lot of people in America that are sick that are diseased, that are poor, that are not having the things that God wants them to have because they haven't done what He's asked them to do. And the reason they haven't done what He's asked them to do is because they're not joyful about it. How many think that man would be joyful about walking again? Yeah. See, he believed that he could walk again because Jesus said it. So he was joyful about it. So when Jesus said, rise, take up your bed and walk, he rose, took up his bed, and he walked. When the people with leprosy, the ten people came to him and he says, go show yourselves to the priest, what do they do? They went and showed themselves to the priest and along the way they all were healed. Peter and John came to the lame man and they said, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have, I give you rise and walk. And he took him by the hand and the man rose and he walked and he went about running and leaping. And praising God. We got to get the joy back in. If God tells us to do something, it's for a reason. And understand this God does not speak a whole lot of words, he never has to. He's a master of language, and He can tell you a whole volume of things in one short little sentence. Now, the other people were not joyful. So he made haste, came down, and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. He turned me down for that? Can you hear the people in the, in the audience saying that? <laughs> you turned down coming to my house for him? He's not even a cook. He doesn't know how to cook. He just hires people to do it. I was making stuff all day hoping that you might come over to my house. And you turned it down for him? They're not happy. And they complain. They didn't have joy in seeing one lost come to Jesus. They didn't have joy in that. We should take joy in people that are lost coming to Jesus. They wanted him for themselves. Or just wanted him to stay away from those they disliked. Make sure we understand Jesus is here to go get those sinners. And we need to be the same. Verse 8, Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I, have, I, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Now, some people look at that and they say, Well, from the tense that it seems to be in, it seems like he's saying this is what he does. I don't know, though. Zacchaeus doesn't come across to me as a person who's giving to the poor. But you know what? No matter how much rich people give away, There are people who will still despise them because they're rich and I'm not. (laughs) Goes against what the word of God says, folks, says don't envy. Don't covet. God said it for a reason. You may think you have good reasons for doing so. Not you folks, but other people. They may think they have good reasons for doing so, but there is no good reason. There is no good reason to disobey what God says. He said, do not envy. He said, do not covet. Don't do it. I give half my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. He's making a declaration here, I believe, of what he is going to do from this time on. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Because he also is a son of Abraham. He was a Jew. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, notice this, that Jesus comes into his house. And once again, Jesus comes into the house of sinners and he does not condemn him for his sins. I want to take you take a couple things, things. Uh, take a look at a few things in Matthew or in the word of God. One in Matthew 20 and verse 18. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priest and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death. Who does the condemning here? The chief priests and the scribes. Luke chapter 6, verse 37. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Who's he talking about doing the condemnation? Us. Don't condemn. And you shall not be condemned. That's future tense. Which means, as of right now, you're not being condemned. But other people may be doing that to you. John 8, verse 11. So uh, she said, No one, Lord... Speaking about Jesus, he asked the question, who were your condemners? Who were your accusers? And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus is not in the condemning business. A lot of of non-Christians out there believe that Jesus condemns them of their sin. Romans 2 and verse 1, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, who judge for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same thing. Who who is doing the condemnation there? We are. 1 John 3, verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. Who does the condemning? Our heart. Does God do it? No. John three verse sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His world, or send His Son into the world to condemn the world. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. If God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, are we sent into the world to condemn the world? No. no. We don't need to condemn people of their sin. But that the world through Him might be saved. That's the purpose of sending Jesus. He who believes in Him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Now, how many times have you heard from people? I don't think that a just God would send people to hell. I don't think that a loving God will condemn people to hell. I don't see that I've done anything so bad that I should be condemned to hell. How many have ever heard that? Yeah. And that's the idea that the world has. It's a wrong view. It's a lie that comes out of the pit of hell. That God is there condemning people and sending people to hell. God is not sending anyone to hell. There's not a single person in hell that God sent there. And this is a message you got to get across to unsaved people. There's not a single person in hell that God sent to hell. Look at what it says. Verse 19, and this is the condemnation that, that the light has come into the world... Uh, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. People that are practicing bad things don't want to come to the light because the light shows off their bad things. And then they feel condemned because they know their bad things. And so they blame it on God, that God's condemning me. But look at what he says again. For God did not send his son, verse 17, into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Might be saved. If you are going to save someone, if you are going to be credited with saving someone, you cannot first have put them in peril. Right? Then you would not be said to be saving them. If you're a lifeguarding, you save somebody out of the ocean because they're drowning. Did you pull that person under? Oh, you saw that they were in trouble and you went out to someone in trouble and helped them out. That's what you did. Verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned. The wording here is important. You got to get this wording down. Verse 18. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. They are already dying. They are already lost. They are already on their way to hell. They need saving. They are condemned already. When you are born into this world, you are born of the first Adam who led us all down the way of transgression and the way of sin. And we are all condemned. No matter how good, no matter how bad. Every single person born into this earth is condemned. We are lost. But Jesus was sent to save. He was sent into the world where a whole bunch of dying people condemned people. And he said, all right, come on over here and I'll help you. If the lifeguard goes out in the boat. You know, they got all kinds of boats now. It used to just be they had the rowboat. But now they got the uh, jet ski boats and they've got uh, all sorts of things they can take into the water. And these things are ready to rescue people. And so they drive up because those, wet, those um, jet ski boats, oh, they're a whole lot faster than those rowboats are. And then, boy, they can just zip right on in there and, they, and they'll tell the person, take my hand, climb aboard, grab hold of the rope. And if the person doesn't take the hand, climb hold of the rope, or climb aboard, or get hold of the rope. Is the lifeguard responsible for killing them? No. no, <laughs> He's not at all. They're already drowning. And they came here to help, but they didn't receive the help. And if they go on down and die, that's not the lifeguard's fault. So if you have people that have that idea, talk to them about lifeguards. And get them there. Take them over here. They all know John three sixteen. Take them over to John 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. If you don't believe in him, you are already condemned. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's why you're condemned. Because you didn't believe in the way out. The way out was provided, but you didn't believe it. So you're condemned. Well, I don't believe that. Then you're condemned. (laughs) But God didn't condemn you. You did, yeah. you condemned yourself. Why well, I, did, I, I didn't condemn myself? Yeah, you didn't believe. Mm-hmm. That's all there is to it. You see, the world expects us to condemn them and or their actions. They expect that of us. Well, are you going to condemn me now, now? that you know what I do? No, not here to condemn you. Just here to let you know about the truth. Jesus saves sinners. No need to save the righteous. Jesus came to save sinners. So if you see yourself as a sinner, you're the one he came to save. Just believe in him. And you won't be condemned. Jesus demonstrates what God desires of us. Don't condemn people. Don't condemn them for their actions. Point them to Jesus. That's the direction they need to go. Put some things here in the application part of your outline. To kind of help you with your sharing Jesus with people. Number one, you do not have to make God's way more acceptable. That's not your job. God made it as acceptable as it needs to be. All you need to do is declare it. Well, I don't know if they want to believe that Jesus is the only way. Well, it's not your... You don't have to, you don't have to try and change it, soften it, make it any different. All you need to do is put it out the other way Jesus said so first off, you don't have to be out there making God's way more acceptable. God's way is God's way. Know God's way and tell people what God's way is. Make sure you're not telling them something wrong. Don't condemn them for their actions. Don't condemn them for their sin. It's not your job. That our, our role is not to condemn. Just talk to them about Jesus. We'll pull them out of that condemnation. Here's a big one. Oh, I'll tell you what, more of us Christians, we need to keep, get this. And sometimes we've had this, but we forget it. You cannot make people believe. Can't do it. <laughs> it is not possible. Can can anybody make you believe in your healing? Can anybody make you believe for that financial thing that's going on? You cannot make people believe. So don't try. Oh, if I can just do this maybe then they'll believe. You can't make them believe. Can't do it. Hebrews 11:6 but without faith it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is must believe that he is. you got to believe that God is. you got to believe that God exists. If you're not going to believe that God exists, then you don't, it's, it's kind of tough to go anywhere else. Why do people go out and get jobs? Because they believe they get paid for them. Right? That belief that we get paid for, we just think if it's called a job, a job means I get paid for it. We don't go up to each individual company and say, do you pay people for working here? we ask, how much do you pay people for working here, right? We don't ask them if they pay people. We kind of assume that they pay people. That's why it's work. People have to believe that God is. If they're not going to believe that God is, then walk away. Oh, all right. You don't want to believe that God is. Well, God says you got to believe that He is and that He's the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. If you want to be in that category, that's fine. And go on. Number three, you are not qualified to condemn. You're not qualified for it. Don't condemn anybody. Yeah, but you don't know how they're living. It don't matter. You don't need to condemn them because it's not going to do any good anyway. God's not expecting you to condemn sin. What does that mean? I condone it. Does that mean that I'm overlooking it? Nothing to do with it at all. They're a sinner. What's the sinner going to do? They're going to sin, right? I mean, if you live in Dallas, more than likely you're going to be a fan of the Cowboys. That's a shame. But, you know, we can't go over to Dallas and condemn people for it. <laughs> right? It's not our job. We're not here to condemn people for what they're doing. That's the job of their heart. What you need to do is get their heart turned on to God. And then let their heart work on them. That's all. is isn't your job. It ain't going to do any good anyway. How many of you have been around churches that sit around there and condemn people for all their actions? Yeah. Condemn, condemn, condemn. How much change does that do? Well, yeah. What you want to do is build up the heart. Get the heart turned on to God. Get the heart to know the, the Word of God. And let the heart say, Hey, Steve, quit doing it. Okay. <laughs> We're going to fix that one. That's how you go. All right. You don't have to make God's way more acceptable. You cannot make people believe. You are not qualified to condemn. But we are to be light In the darkness. We are to be light in darkness. A, B, C, D. Help you to remember it. We are to be light in the darkness. Do not become darkness in the darkness. Become light. Stay with the light. Darkness condemns. When the people brought the woman who was caught, what did they do? They condemned. They were in darkness. Because darkness condemns other people. My heart, when it is brought to the light, condemns me. And then I fix it. And I go on. But I don't stop being a Christian. We don't need to go out there and condemn. We are in the light. They are in the darkness. Bring to them the light that they need. If they choose to believe it, glory to God. They believe it. Don't soften it. Don't change it. Don't mix it up. Just keep it what it is. If people don't want to... Go after the direction of God. You have to be able to walk away from some people. You have to begin to say to some people, you know what? I can't pray for you anymore. That's right. Oh, why not? Because God has shown himself to you and you've rejected it. How can I pray, pray for you anymore? You've got to sometimes just shake some people up. Just, uh, you know, we're, we're sometimes too nice <laughs> we think. Look, go back. Go back and look at Jesus. Jesus was not always nice to people. He was sometimes very, very stern with people. And there's some people that, in order to reach them, you got to be hard, tough, stern. They don't like softies. They want people that are that can be tough. I told you the story of a friend of mine over at uh, Ken's Pizza. When I first started working there, he was he was the best cook he could run the ovens but he was probably the best cook in the place i eventually got to the place where i was one of the one of the best oven runners and he was content he didn't want to run the ovens he was content and so we would go back and forth i would run the ovens and he would run the make table and we'd pick on each other mercifully unmercifully if he had two pepperonis on the same pizza touching i would pick on I would pull the whole pizza out slap it down in front of him and say did they ask for both pepperonis to be touching each other And so he would fix them up and he would separate them, right them and I'd put them back in the oven. And he'd go into my ovens and would say, did they ask for that bubble on that pizza? Did they ask for that pizza to be burned? <laughs> and we would go back and forth. Oh, we would be something else. And we always worked together on a Friday night. Every Friday night was our night to work together and we began to look forward to it because we felt like there was no rush we couldn't handle. And all gone folks, there was no rush we couldn't handle. that that restaurant never got busier than we could handle. And we had other help too. It wasn't just the two of us, but we would take the two of the the most difficult positions and we would dare the restaurant to beat us. We both had that attitude and we both loved it when the place was filling up and the phones are ringing and people are coming in. We loved the pressure. And we often said, because Saturday morning was one of the toughest shifts because all they had was two cooks and two waitresses, And they can never get everything done. And we often told them, it says, put us both on the Saturday morning shift. And we will show you how it can be done. We were a little little, um, confident in our ways. (laughs) And we told them this over and over again. Put us on a Saturday morning schedule together. We will show you what we can do. Finally, they, they would often say, we can't. Because if we do that, then we don't have anybody, either one of you here Saturday night. And we need at least one of you here Saturday night. But one day, the day finally came. I think I agreed to work all day. And so I came in and I worked from the morning until the next day. I was working until about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning on Sunday. It's, about, it's an 18 hour shift that you've got to pull in order to, to pull it off. And I still made it to church the next day. <laughs> but I, in order to get that done, that's what we had to do. And we came in that morning. I was so excited. I was joyful. We were going to be put together on the same Saturday morning shift. And I showed up at the restaurant, and I opened the door up, and he wasn't there. And he came late. And when he finally came in, he was hungover. And he couldn't do anything. He was basically useless. And he was laying out in the in the restaurant area trying to get over this hangover. And he's supposed to be at work. Now, I'm mad. We, I, said, I told him, I said, we begged, we pleaded, we told him what we could do, and now you show up like this. And I was not easy on him at all. I was hard on him. I went out and I was cleaning some stuff. And we this is way back when we used to cook pizzas in metal pans. And I took all those metal pans when I was cleaning and accidentally knocked them all on the floor. <laughs> Every single one of them, it was a stack of 30 metal pans and it made the most awful racket in there And all. He was in pain. I said, that's just the start of it. And I was all over him and I told him, you show up here hungover on another night. They put us together and it'll be worse. But I didn't treat him easy. I was tough on him. And I think it was that day. Things began to change with him. And he began to open up to me. And one day we sat down together, him and I, and we had this conversation. And he said, you know, I wasn't always against church. I used to go to church. And he used to go to a Pentecostal church. And he said, and they prophesied something over me. And he told me what they prophesied over him. And I think it scared him. And he got out of church. We talked about it some more and eventually... He turned his life over to Jesus. I went down. from. By then, I had already moved back when he and his fiancée, uh, the waitress I was telling you about before, they got married. And they said, Steve, would you come on down and marry us? I said, sure will. They <laughs> anyway, were the first wedding I ever did. So came on down, married them, and they went off. And, and every time we would go out to Tulsa, we would always check in with the two of them to see how they were doing. Every time news happened, babies were born, they'd always send us information, send us baby pictures and cards and things like that. But you know, there's some people you can't deal with nicely. You have to be hard. You have to be tough. Tony was one that he appreciated people who were tough, who were hard. And so I found a way into his life. One of those ways, I think I told you a long time ago, was on a Friday he would always come in for just a couple of hours and I always closed the store and he got on me one time he says you know it sure would be nice if you guys would at least make boxes we got to do all the other prep here on the Saturday morning if at least you make the boxes so we don't have to do that and so one Friday night we had a whole crew I was running the shift and we didn't have a whole lot of business and so I, achieved, I assigned every idle waitress and every idle cook the job of making boxes. We made boxes all night long. Every box, when, you, when a box comes in, it's flat. Naz knows about this. He showed me his boxes. The box comes in, they flat. When you make the box, it's puffed up. We made every single box that we had in the store. Every one that we had out in the shed, every one that was stored up was no longer stored. It was now made into a box. And we put those boxes on the make tables, we put the boxes on the on the cutting table, we put the boxes on top of the ovens, we put them on the prep tables, we put them on the where the dishwasher was, we put them on the floor, we put them on the on the tables out in the restaurant. We put them all over. When they came in, all they saw was boxes. There were boxes on the floor, there were boxes on the tables. There was no place you could walk that there was not a box. Everywhere there was a box. It was kind of like the plague in the Exodus. <laughs> Except instead of frogs and gnats, it was boxes. They were all over. I couldn't wait to get to work the next day and see Tony's face. Because they not only had to deal with all the prep, all the making, all the business, all the prep for the evening shift, they had to also deal with massive amounts of boxes. And now no room to do the prep because the boxes are there. I came on in and Tony was mad as fire. He was yelling at me and between yells he would be smiling and smirking a little bit too because <laughs> he appreciated we got him. <laughs> he liked those kind of things. There are sometimes that with people you need to be that way. With Tony, I needed to be that way. And I opened him up. And there are people that are around you. Sometimes you're just too nice. Sometimes you're just trying to satisfy them. And Jesus doesn't satisfy people. He speaks the light to them. That's right. There are times you're going to have to tell people, I can't pray for you anymore. That's right. We were talking about that a little bit uh, last weekend somewhere. I can't pray for you anymore. Sometimes you've got to do that. But sometimes you've got to say to people, I'm sorry, God won't do that. Can you pray for me? No, God won't do that. I, I know my God, He won't do that. Sometimes you need to come back with people and say, will you pray with me this? Will you give your life to Jesus? But you just listen to, to, to the voice inside. God's going to lead you. to, Because each one is different. God wants to get them. For Zacchaeus, Jesus just looked up in the tree and says, I need to come over to his house. I come over to his house. We're going to change things. There's a whole lot of other people. But he could only go to one house. He picked Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus changed. Two weeks, we have a Sunday coming up to invite people. National Get Back to Church Day. I hope you're looking at people to invite. Sometimes we invite always the same people and the same people turn us down. You need to go out there and find some new people. If they're hard, maybe they look like a Zacchaeus. But maybe they're ready. Listen to God. But just get out there and just like last week we're seeing in the story, compel them. Go on the highways and byways. Get anybody. driving to church. If you see somebody walking on the road, hey, you want to come to church with me? That's going down the highways and byways and compelling them to come in. It doesn't always have to be people that you know, but it can be people that you know. Are we ready back there with our video? All right, here is how not to do it. I'll be inside in a minute. I'm gonna say hey to Joe. Hey Joe. Hey Mike. Flower well, beds are looking good, neighbor. Yep. You guys should get back from church? Ah, yeah, yeah, just been at the church house. I wonder why he never invites me to church. I mean, I'd go if he asked me to go. But this is the way it is. I'm out in my front yard when he comes home from church. It's always so awkward. It's so awkward. And I'm so hungry. Ugh. I think my wife made goulash. I love goulash. Oh, maybe Joe would like some goulash for lunch. Hey, Joe. Here comes the invitation to church. Yeah? You wanna come over? Sure, for a I'd goulash. love to go to church with you. What'd you just say? What'd you just say? No, what? No, what'd you say? What'd no, you, what say? you say? You said something about God, 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 Goo, 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 Goo. Goulash. goulash, Goulash. It's a. You're having goulash at your church? No, no, at my house. You're having, you're inviting me over for goulash? Yeah, At your goulash. Yeah, who doesn't like goulash? I like some goulash. Yeah, sign me up. Goulash. Let's check and make sure we have enough. I see you walking away. All right, so that's the way not to do it. (laughs) But it's easy to do. There are people out there who are just waiting for an invitation and are just waiting for someone to care enough about them to bring them out to to church with them. If we want to make sure that our hearts are right before God, we want to make sure that we have a steady heart, an open heart, and not a stubborn one. The best thing we can do is pattern our heart after God. God's heart is for the lost. It's for the unsaved. It's for the people that aren't in the family yet because He wants the house to be full. He wants the feast to be filled with people. There are people that are coming across your path. God wants you to invite them. God wants you to minister to them. Some of them might be going over to the house, fellowshiping, building up a relationship. Some of them might just be speaking the right word at the right time. But listen to the spirit inside of you. Jesus was told some things about the woman at the well. And Jesus knew about Zacchaeus and his tree. The Spirit of God will tell you some stuff. He will tell you some things because he wants to help you accomplish this, he wants to help you do it. Just know that God is there to help us. Would you all stand up with me? Today being the first Sunday of the month is our communion Sunday. And as Jesus brought his disciples into the upper room, the night that he was betrayed,